The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This is our second week, just a two-week quick study on Luther. Next week, we're going to be uh, starting our class on um, uh, basically a, a miniature version of the perspectives class on missions, and it's going to be really wonderful, a lot of different people teaching it, um, and I think it's going to be used in a wonderful way uh, by the Lord to uh, help us to understand the world Christian movement. Tonight, we're going to look for a second week at the life, uh, and the, this time concentrate a little more on the theology of Martin Luther. So what I've given you is an outline. Uh, I reduced um, the first section uh, that brought us up to Luther's uh, defense of his faith at the Diet of Worms. So just by way of a quick review, we talked about how the 15th and 16th century, in the 15th and 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church was ripe for reformation. We talked about a number of uh, movements of reform. But Luther went right for the doctrine. He went for the theology. He wasn't just attacking the life, but he was looking at where, the way they were understanding the gospel itself. And that was the essence of the Reformation. Not that there weren't ethical reforms, moral reforms, reforms in their practice, their worship. There were. It affected everything. But that's not. That's the fruit on the tree. He was going for the root, the nature of the tree itself. As Jesus said, make, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. And so the only thing that can make us good is God alone through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the big problem with the whole sacramental system and uh, the uh, theology that was there before Luther is that it was basically you just had to do do what you could, do what uh, lay within you. That was their theology. If you did what lay within you, you would be good enough. And God would, uh, uh, well, he'd make you suffer in purgatory for thousands of years. But once you were purged, then you could go to heaven. Luther attacked all of that. Reformer appears, Martin Luther, born in 1483, died in 1546. We covered some of his spiritual journey. And we talked about the building project that split the church. That was the St. Peter's Basilica. They uh, allowed Tetzel, a Dominican, um, to come and uh, preach an indulgence. Indulgences were little pieces of paper with the papal authority saying that this or that sin was forgiven or this or that individual was released from purgatory. It was just a document with the Pope's authority concerning sin and suffering. And so you could buy them for money. And so that was it. It was a fundraiser. And it, it was repugnant really to Luther and his understanding of the gospel. And so he started to attack it. He attacked it in the 95 Theses, nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, October 31st, 1517, attacking indulgences, penance, purgatory, various things. Luther's theology was not completely formed at that point. You can see some kind of waffling, uh, not so much waffling, but the old and the new way of understanding. You can find both in the 95 Theses. It's still early. Uh, he develops much more over the next five years, especially. But this is just the beginning, and he's learning, he's growing. But uh, already some things are in place. We talked about some of his key writings, the two kinds of righteousness in 1517, that basically there's the alien righteousness, and then there's the Christian's own proper righteousness. It has to do with the righteousness given to you by faith in Christ alone, and then also that which is just part of who you are, uh, the way you live, your lifestyle, uh, in imitation of Christ. So that was a key understanding of the gospel. Uh, he also talk, uh, wrote an open letter to the Christian nobility, the Babylonian captivity of the church, and freedom of the Christian. This is all by way of review. We covered these 
and summarized them last time. We talked some about the political context last time, how Luther's Reformation really had a political side to it. We believe, ultimately, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God wanted the church reformed. He wanted Luther to rediscover the gospel. Uh, but he used politics to do that. I don't want you to misunderstand. We're not just looking at it like, a, like pagans would, like unbelievers would, saying this was a political phenomenon. But it would be wrong for us to neglect to notice that there were some political aspects to it. Uh, the fact that Luther had some protection from the elector, Frederick the Wise, and uh, the fact that there was a rising German nationalism and they were just sick of Italians coming up and taking German money to go build Italian churches. There were a lot of things going on. The, the election of, of Charles V as the Holy Roman Emperor, which is right around that same time. Just It's amazing, isn't it, how things just flowed together and just came uh, to that certain point where the time had come for Luther to do his work. Uh, one of the books I was reading about the Reformation talks about the role of the printing press and uh, does a study on what was printed up until the Reformation, what was printed once the Reformation started and beyond. It was almost like Gutenberg's movable-type pr- printing press was waiting for Luther. And once he got going, man, did it really go. It was incredible that it just took off the number of things that were printing, uh, were being printed. And Luther himself, as I mentioned last time, wrote something for publication about every other week his whole adult life. Incredible flow of writing and teaching. So uh, all of these things flowed together, the political context, the printing press, all of these things. We covered the steps to the explosion, the Dominican assault. Tetzel was very angry with Luther and they it started there. And then the Diet at Augsburg, 1518, the Leipzig debate, papal bull exerge domine. Rise up, O Lord. A wild boar has entered your vineyard. Come and kill him. He's doing damage. So uh, that was the papal bull giving Luther, I think, 90 days, I may be wrong about that, but 90 days to repent, recant. Uh, Luther got it after the time it expired, so so much for that. Well, he burned it anyway. I don't think it would have mattered when he got it. He was going to burn it as it was. So, And then Luther's uh, three treatises, as we discussed, um, and then the Diet of Worms. Uh, Eck, the emissary uh, of the Catholic Church, confronted him and forced him to come to an answer. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors they contain? Luther's answer, since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. So there it was, a single individual based on their take, their understanding of the word of God, unable to violate his conscience against all of the, the power and the terror, really, of the Catholic Church at that moment. Luther was excommunicated by the Edict of Worms. Diet of Worms is the group of people that sat together in judgment on Luther. Edict of Worms was their statement that he was um, excommunicated. He was, uh, that's their form of church discipline. He was out. Uh, Luther then was given a 21-day safe conduct pass. I've told you before, those things were just not worth the paper they're printed on. So he was in grave danger, really, from the moment that, that he made that statement. From then on, he was in a lot of trouble, a lot of danger. So he's making his way back home, and suddenly, on the night of May the 3rd, Luther was kidnapped by an unknown group of men. He was abducted, whisked away. No one knew where he was. Well, we now know who they were. They were... Uh, men sent actually by Frederick the Wise to save his life. Now, it's interesting that he's got to do this ruse, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, I've got Luther. 
what are you going to do about it? He doesn't have that much strength, but he's got enough courage to risk it. I mean, it's hard to hide things in a kingdom. And uh, so he's willing to have some level of risk, but he's not willing to take on, let's say, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and all of his Spanish troops. He's not willing to risk an open breach. Now, war would come later on the issue of the, of the Reformation. Protestant Catholic wars would last 100 years or more. Just wasn't time yet. And so Frederick the Wise was wise. You know, he's just he's going to keep a certain level of clandestine secrecy. So he hides Luther at the Wartburg. The Wartburg's a big castle, still standing, a uh, beautiful um, place. And uh, Luther was basically kind of on house arrest there for his own safety and his own protection, kind of like a witness protection program, you know. Uh, they even changed his name. He was called Junker George, all right? The uh, Junker is knight. He was a knight, and he grew a beard, and he looked very different uh, than uh, Augustinian monk. So there he is up in the Wartburg, and he was there for 10 months. Now, he had all kinds of problems there uh, while he was there. He was used to a pretty austere diet. He was used to... Um, you know, a certain monastic regimen. And his uh, body wasn't used to the rich food they were serving him. There were temptations of the flesh and of the spirit. He was really struggling spiritually. It was a hard thing for him to be up there in that room. You can see the picture there on page three of where he was. That's literally a picture. C.J. Bowen took that with his own camera. So there it is. Um, you know, he's just in a, he's, he's in a cell up there um, being protected, but uh, restless. And the devil is, is at work. Well, Luther started to work, you know. He was not idle. He was a hard, hard worker. These folks are unbelievable. Uh, some of these great men of God um, uh, that did all this writing, these reformers were just incredible, the amount of things they did. And Luther started to work on the most important uh, writing work he did, which was the translation of the Old and New Testaments into the colloquial, into German. And he did it without the benefit of a dictionary, just from his knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. Isn't that astonishing? When you stop and think about what he did, he published 12 new books and translated the entire New Testament into German in 11 weeks. Isn't that amazing? Uh, actually, I have a letter. Uh, I haven't read it in a while, so I'm just going from old memory here. But he writes to a friend about all the projects he was involved in and just lists them. It just makes you dizzy, um, all the things he was doing while he was there. And then he kind of jokes and says, you can see what a lazy fellow I am. So, but that's what he was doing. He was working hard. The books that he wrote covered practical issues such as the Mass, Confession, Monastic Vows. Uh, as I mentioned, he was condemned by the Edict of Worms, emperor, uh, issued by the Emperor shortly after the Diet of Worms. Now, what this meant was, legally, anybody could strike him dead on sight and not be punished. That's how that works. So, I don't even know that he was thinking he'd be burned at the stake. He might just be assassinated. Really, any any kind of person trying to get in good with the Emperor could... Um, you know, know, know that he was there and kill him and then get a reward. So um, as he was up there, he was keeping track of what was going on with the Reformation. In Christmas of 1521, Andreas Karlstadt, one of his uh, fellow professors, went too far and celebrated the Mass without priestly robes in German. He distributed both bread and wine to the people gathered for the service. He's starting to, you know, he's, he's really going fast, Karlstadt is. Um, he just thinks, let's just go and get it done. Uh, let's get the Reformation done. Uh, Karlstadt got married uh, shortly thereafter with Luther's approval, but uh, under Karlstadt's kind of preaching and leadership, uh, there started these iconoclastic riots. Uh, what this was, the icons were actual little statues that were in the church, 
and they were venerated but not worshipped. The distinction is lost on me. But at any rate, they, they have a di- di- difference between veneration and worship. And so some folks, inspired by the teachings that they were understanding from Luther and etc., they said, well, we need to destroy these. They're idols. And so they went, they just started smashing up churches. They're going like, it was, it was just mob rule. It was going out of control. And Karlstadt was encouraging this. The iconoclastic riots were spreading. And to the Catholics, this was just evidence of the godlessness of this whole movement. It was really an embarrassment to the movement at that point. So also there's this group called the Zwickau Prophets and they arrived with some special revelations from God. So they're starting to hear directly from God without needing the scripture. So things are just really starting to um, go out of control. Uh, at that point, March 2nd, 1522, Luther obtained Frederick's partial permission to return to Wittenberg and he leaped at the chance, get me out of here. He wants to get back in the fray. So a week later, March 9th, he began to preach uh, at Wittenberg and he quieted the disturbances and he righted the ship of, ship of reform. He said, faith without love is no faith at all. He said, Rome showed this when compelling fasts and communion regulations and confessions. But now the Wittenbergers were doing the same thing, only opposite from Rome. They were behaving the same way. So he calmed the thing down and I think he probably was the only person who could have done it. He was a great preacher, but he was such a presence at this point. And so he's able to... Um, really sucked the wind out of the rebellion and the lawlessness that was going on at that point. He preached seven more sermons, a series on the Ten Commandments. The point was clear. The people needed to be instructed. They needed to be taught the Word of God. That's what was going to uh, cause the changes. Very interesting statement, and I've, I've even used it concerning my ministry here and very practical questions. People are asking questions, should we do this or that? And it's always hard to know the answers to some of these things. But I'll never forget what Luther said in talking about the iconoclastic riots. He said, he said, you've got to preach the word. He said, take care of the idols in the heart and the idols on the wall will take care of themselves. The people will take them down themselves. And that's, I think it was just such wisdom there. You know, the first thing is, to, is a transformation of the heart by an understanding of the word of God. Let the symbols and the trappings alone. They'll come down in due time. But if you go before it's time and start pulling down the symbols and the trappings, you're going to cause huge problems. So he preached the word, and that was his regular pattern. I think it was it was true. He built a team of men to help him. Carlstadt uh, was one of them, although they eventually had a falling out. Philip Melanchthon was his right-hand man. He eventually systematized Luther's doctrines in the uh, common places, the English translation of it. He also had a few other helpers. Um, and so this was his inner circle. And these were uh, men that were helping him in the advance of the Reformation. More and more leaders of the Reform were coming forward, people like Ulrich Zwingli and Ecolampadius, Martin Bootser and others, people in Switzerland and in Germany. Luther was not alone. Uh, so he's managing um, the Reformation. He's faithfully preaching the word week after week. Luther said this, and I've quoted this before, but I just love this quote. He said, I did nothing. The word did everything. I simply let the word do its work. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses on it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Now, that's good advice for the most part. Now, you can figure out what part I would not espouse. But uh, at any rate, um, he's saying the word of God did everything. Now, obviously, he did a lot more than that. He counseled people. He, he got involved. He was writing things that de- dealt with political issues. He's involved. But the word of God had the uh, power behind it. And this is biblical too, isn't it? Remember what it says in the book of James. It says, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Think about that. The word planted in you has power to save. 
And that's what I believe, and I think it's what Luther was doing all the time. He just trusted the Word to do its work. He also said in another place, always preach in such a way that if the people listening to you do not come to hate their sin, they will hate you instead. Um, Now, you say, well, why would you want to do that? What is he saying there? He's saying, don't be wishy-washy. Come out strongly. Come out boldly. Bring people to a point of decision. Help them to hate their sin as much as God does. It says in Psalm 97.10, let those who are righteous hate sin, hate wickedness. So that's a mark of righteousness is hatred of wickedness. And Luther, I think, did that through the word or the Holy Spirit did that using the word that he preached. Now, 1524-1525, there started the Peasants' Revolt. Now, this was a very regrettable part of uh, the history of the Reformation at this point. Peasants, sick of their overlords and of the economic system that they were under, started to rebel. Uh, They started to... um, um, to uh, throw off temple authority. And this was even worse than the iconoclastic riots. This is just lawlessness. You understand what I'm saying? It's just rebelling against God-ordained authorities. And Luther, they hoped that Luther would kind of lead them. Luther shocked them when he came out with a tract entitled Against the Murderous and Thieving Hordes of Peasants. So that's pretty clear. You almost don't need to read the tract. I mean, you kind of know where he's at. That's what they were to him. They were murderous and thieving hordes of peasants. So he uh, spoke very strongly against them and in entity called on the German nobility, quote, to smite, strangle, and stab the mad peasants as one must kill a crazed dog. Now, I'll tell you, when you read Luther, you read him the what he really believed and what he really thought. It's not tame. It's very interesting. But he believed that these folks were, were under demonic influence to destroy all of society. And he thought that they needed to be stopped. Um, He also wrote against the heavenly prophets, uh, uh, speaking about the Zwickau prophets and others, and uh, basically the idea that we're going to get our understanding of spiritual things through the word of God and not by direct revelation from the Holy Spirit as these Zwickau prophets and others were doing. Now, one of the key things he did uh, was dispute with Erasmus on free will. We're going to talk about that uh, when I go over Luther's theology at the end of our time here. But uh, he wrote on the bondage of the will in 1525. In it, he argued that the Apostle Paul plainly taught uh, that sin has so bound the will that it is a slave to wickedness. And we're going to go over some of uh, Luther's actual statements on this. But I think, in my opinion, um, that this is the absolute core of the Reformation. You want to boil it all down. It really comes down to Erasmus and Luther on the freedom or the bondage of the will. Um, And we're going to talk about this at the end. But Luther himself said so. He really did. Uh, he said, you know, Erasmus chose the topic, uh, encouraged by Sir Thomas More. Why don't you debate Luther on the issue of the freedom of the will? And Luther said, you did well in choosing this. This is really the kernel or the heart of the matter. Um, you want to understand the Reformation. It had to do with, do we have the freedom to save ourselves? Can we, <clears throat> through good works, by just a turning and understanding of ourselves and sin and God, can we, of our own free will and our own choice, turn toward God and save ourselves by doing the good works that the church has laid out or not? And that's uh, what they debated. We'll talk more about that in due time. He also engaged in the sacramentarian controversy with Ulrich Zwingli. This was, in my opinion, one of the most grievous aspects of the German Reformation, and that's that they couldn't unite with the Swiss Reformation. And the issue between the two had to do with uh, the statement that Jesus made the night before he was crucified when he said, this is my body. What did it mean? And we talked about this some during our our Acts class on worship. But uh, when Jesus said, this is my body, 
Now, you understand Luther, and I mentioned this when we were talking about his life before his evangelical conversion. He was a priest. He was a Catholic priest. And he was so terrified by what he believed was the actual and real presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the element, the bread and the wine uh, of the communion, that he was trembling and, and had to have actual support. Priests had to come and help him. And this happens sometimes when priests were offering up their first um, uh, communion to the Lord, when they were um, saying the words of institution and speaking in Latin and, and just speaking to the Almighty God. They would sometimes become over, overcome. Well, Luther had, uh, even beyond his evangelical conversion, an absolute conviction in what we call the real presence, that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually present in the elements. He said that this is what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body. He didn't say this signifies my body, but it actually is my body. Well, Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, uh, felt that the Lord's Supper was merely a memorial. It was a symbol. That's all. It was just a symbol. And so Jesus was in no sense any more present there than he was anywhere else. It's just something we do to help us remember Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now, you remember when we covered this somewhat in the worship, my view is somewhat in between. Um, I think that the Lord has promised to do something spiritually in us as we follow this, uh, this ordinance, the Lord's Supper. And so I pray for it. I ask for it. In this way, I would say that I follow the views of John Calvin, what some call the uh, spiritual view of the Lord's Supper that the Lord is not physically actually present there. There's no transformation of the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ. But it is no mere uh, cold symbol or memorial either. I mean, it has greater significance than other things we could do. We, we could make up our own symbols, but God's not promised to bless them. He wanted us to do this. As often as you do this, said the Apostle Paul, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Significant. So... At any rate, um, they tried to get together at the colloquy of Marburg and uh, the Swiss reformers and their party were focused on John 6.63. John 6.63 uh, says, um, Jesus said there, the words I speak to are spirit and they are life. What are they saying by saying that? They're saying it's spiritual. There's no actual physical body of Christ here. The words I've spoken are spirit. And so we take them spiritually. They also acknowledge that Jesus used other kinds of analogies. Like, for example, I am the door of the sheep. Was he a door? You know, uh, I am I am the uh, vine. Was he a vine? You know, when he says uh, that this is I am the bread of heaven, was he actually bread or was he just speaking metaphorically to help us understand what he does for us spiritually? Well, I believe that the Swiss reformers were right and that Luther went too far. But Luther took a hunk of chalk and wrote on a wooden table, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. And he pointed to it and slammed his fist down on it and said, he said, this is the text that will break your bones. Speaking to Ulrich Zwingli, well, I don't think this is the way brothers should treat each other. You know, I just, you know, and, and even worse then he says, you and I are different spirit. Meaning he didn't think that Zwingli was a Christian, you know. Well, that's really very sad. And so there was a significant breach and that had all kinds of effects in the politics and the flow and the military things that happened afterwards. But uh, that uh, sacramentarian controversy stayed with Luther the rest of his life. All right. So that's a quick overview of his life. The rest of, you know, after that sacramentarian controversy, there were other things he wrote and did. But pretty much at that point, the big events of Luther's life are done. You know, the 95 Theses and the defense at, at, at Worms, Diet of Worms, his key writings that just shook the world, all of the debates, the stuff, all of that pretty much is done. 
And now he just settles into being basically the pastor of a local church and kind of, in a larger sense, the pastor of the Reformation. And he would just go from place to place visiting pastors, encouraging them to preach the word, helping them, behaving in that kind of a mentoring sort of role. All right? So that's just a quick kind of overview of Luther's life. Now let's take some time and try to understand aspects of Luther's doctrine. Any questions about Luther's life before we go into his doctrine? Anything? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's a few. Um, the best is uh, and the most notable is Roland Bainton's Here I Stand. It's been around for a long time. Uh, Roland Bainton, Here I Stand. He was a professor of, of um, church history at Yale. It's the standard. Uh, along with it is uh, Kittleson's um, uh, Luther the Reformer. Uh, that's another good one. And uh, uh, there's probably about 280. Um, but the, those two are really good. Those are some that I've read. Let me see if I gave you the, the right word on Kittleson. Uh, Luther the Reformer, yeah. Augsburg Press, 1986. Okay, other questions? Yeah. Yeah, for a while. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I did. I'm sorry I didn't make that clear, but on March 2nd, he obtained, uh, 1522, he obtained permission from Frederick to go back to his pulpit. And he went back as Martin Luther, not Junker George. Well, who's Junker George? And they all kind of knew who he was anyway. Look, look at him a little closely. It's like, you know, minus the beard, you look a lot like Martin Luther. So, but he had to go as Luther in order to shut down the iconoclastic controversy and all that. Junker George isn't going to help much on that, but Luther can help. Yeah, go ahead, Roxanne. Yeah, it's still around. Now, I don't speak German, but they say that, that it still has a great effect on uh, German church life. It is old. I mean, German has changed a lot in the last 500 years. But, you know, they say that Luther's translation has had one of the greatest impacts on modern German of anything that's ever been. I mean, it has a tremendous impact on the way Germans speak German, even those that don't know the Bible at all. So that's a, that's a good question. In a similar way to the King James having, there's so many expressions from the King James that are in our common expressions, and people don't even know they come from the King James. That was William Tyndale. What an incredible man he was. Other questions about Luther's life? I think he was an amazing man, very courageous, uh, willing to willing to stand up and be counted, um, and willing to die for what he believed. Um, let's talk about an overview of Luther, Luther's theology. One of the big differences between Martin Luther and John Calvin is that John Calvin was a systematizer of the Christian faith. When he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion and went through four editions of that and each one significantly updated and improved from the last one, he was constantly working on the big picture, on what we call systematic theology. Systematic theology is the Christian faith from the Bible understood topically. Let me say that again. Systematic theology is the Christian faith from the Bible understood topically, arranged topically, so that you could open up and learn what the Scripture says about the nature and doctrine of God and the nature and doctrine of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, uh, the nature and doctrine of the Word of God or of heaven or of hell or of angels, demons, whatever, just arranged doc, uh, by topic. And Calvin did this in an, in an amazingly clear and sharp way. Luther never did it. As a matter of fact, others like Melanchthon and from Melanchthon on, Lutheran theologians have sought to kind of systematize and organize uh, Luther's theology. He never really did it. But there were some key themes that come out again and again. One of them is just the fact that that we are sinners um, at at our root. The problem of sin, very significant. I like this quote here from uh, Luther at the top. It is very hard for a man to believe that God is gracious to him. The human heart can't grasp this. 
We have a hard time understanding grace. We have a hard time giving it to others, but we also have a hard time receiving it from God. We just really want to earn our salvation. There's so much, and and we have a hard time believing that God can be forgiving to us. Um, So Luther was desiring to zero in on what he called the kernel or the meat of the nut, what he's looking at 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 the core of theology. That's what he was doing. Whereas Calvin, I said, was more of a systematizer trying to look at the big picture. Both of their works are valuable. But let's look at the issue of sinners at the root. Uh, one of his slogans in Latin was simul justus et peccator. Man is at the same time righteous and a sinner. And this is so true, isn't it? Um, if you understand justification by faith, uh, this was you know, one of the core doctrines that Luther re- rediscovered for us in Paul's writings, that we are, we are righteous by faith. You know, It says that in Romans 1.17, just the key understanding, by faith alone, are we made righteous? We'll talk about that when we get to the solas in a moment. But we are just in the sight of God. We are righteous through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He, you can't be any more righteous than that. You can't be any more righteous than Jesus Christ, right? And that comes to you as a simple gift through faith in Jesus Christ. That is true. But at the same time, you're a sinner. And it's wrong for you, it'd be wrong for you to deny that. If anyone says, uh, I have not sinned, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. First John 1. And so in order to be honest, we have to say, I have sin in me. And it's not just, uh, you know, it's a, like I need a new coat of paint in my life. I mean, it's sin that goes to the root of who we are. It's a serious problem. Um, I like this statement here uh, that Luther made as he was dying. One of his final statements was, uh, he said it in German, we are all beggars. This is true. We are all beggars. What do you think Luther meant by that? Well, what he meant was that we have no righteousness of our own. We stand in the position of beggars just like jesus said in matthew 5 3 blessed are the spiritual beggars for theirs is the kingdom of heaven by the way people have asked me about they say my bible doesn't say that it says blessed are the poor in spirit well i know i I know that's what it says but understand the word poor there's patokos meaning a destitute person who sits by the side of the road with nothing and and if he doesn't get something from somebody he won't eat that day i call that person a beggar and so that's why i think it's a good understanding of blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven that's the first word Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You want to go to heaven, then be a beggar. And Luther, one of his last statements is, we are all beggars. This is true. Um, and so he feels that at the end of his life. We are sinners at our root. B- Bishop Berkeley in 1670 put it this way. I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the holy sacrament, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. That's a strong statement, isn't it? We are covered in sin. Our best works covered in sin. Luther went so far as to say, apart from Christ, all of your good works are sins. They're sins. And uh, so that was a core understanding of Luther. Luther's doctrine of God informed the rest of his theology. The sin of man is seen in light of God the Holy One. Have you ever wondered why it is that sinners are made to suffer eternally for sins they did in a temporal lifetime? Did that ever strike you as maybe excessive or you wondered why God could make a murderer even or a blasphemer or even just an unrepenter, somebody who never trusted the gospel, to burn forever in hell? That's something I struggle with trying to understand, but I think it comes down to this. We don't really understand the holiness and the greatness of God. And we don't understand how God truly sees sin. 
And so Luther said, all sin has to be seen in light of the greatness and the holiness of God. Then and only then would we have an understanding um, of how this could be righteous and just of God. Redemption, therefore, is only comprehensible in light of the seriousness of sin. As I said in one of my sermons a a few months ago, um, if you have only a little sin, you only need a little Savior. But if you have a great sin, then you need a great Savior. And that's exactly what we have, a great high priest, a great Savior, Jesus Christ. Luther's insight into sin was remarkable. Um, He wrestled constantly with sin. He wrestled constantly with depression. He struggled with it. Uh, It was this this German uh, word, anfektung, this depression, this discouragement inside. And he battled with it even after his conversion, constantly struggling with the question, is it going to be possible for me through my sin and my wickedness, to be in such a state that God will turn his back on me and condemn me to hell. That was on his mind. And he was concerned about it. So all his life he wrestled with this issue of sin. Sin, therefore, is not merely what we do, but it is who we are. It's not just something you do. If you could just change your habit patterns. See, this was part of the problem with Erasmus. You know, his Incaridian, his little manual of the Christian soldier. It's a bunch of ethics and, and good works and all that kind of stuff. But there's just it has no converting power. It doesn't deal with the root problem. You can tell people a bunch of things to do and a bunch of penances and all that, but it doesn't transform who you are, not at the root. Luther understood that. He said, we've got to get to the core of who we are. He said, sin could not be quantified. Likewise, also grace, which necessitated a rejection of the treasury of merit idea. Now, what I mean by that, the treasury of merit, as we talked about last time, was that it was possible for you, if you are a saint, and by saint, I mean a believer in Jesus Christ, But the Catholics, medieval Catholics and present-day Catholics, meant an unusually good person, right? Who, Who received a special measure of grace and who therefore did above and beyond the righteousness needed to go to heaven, like it was some kind of a test with a passing grade. And you could get 106 on the test. And God would just kind of carve off the six and put it in the treasury of merits, right? 100 is for you, in you go. No purgatory for you, you're a saint. Right into heaven. But the extra 6% that you did beyond what was needed for salvation, are you tracking this? All right. That extra amount, that goes in the treasury of merit. Luther's saying, what in the world is a treasury of merit? I mean, how is it possible to do more than God requires, first of all? And second of all, do you not understand how wicked and sinful we are? Nobody's at 100%. Nobody's even close. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so the treasury idea offered no remedy to a sinful nature, just sins. Uh, I've said this before, but Luther said, uh, our wrestling with sin, like in Romans 7, the very thing I hate, I do. And the very thing I want to do, I can't do. That's what we struggle with. Paul struggled with it. We all do. He said it's like a drunken peasant trying to ride home for the night. And he's on his donkey and he leans too far one side and clunk, falls over. So he gets back up and he leans too far the other side and clunk, falls over. He just can't make it home. It's in his nature to fall off the donkey. And so it's in our nature to not walk righteously and upright in this present world. Uh, the problem of sin. So that's one major theme in Luther's theology. Secondly is this doctrine or the theology of the cross. The center of it for Luther was the theology of the cross. He made a a contrast of the word pax, peace, and cross, crux. The peace achieved through indulgences was a false peace. But the theology of glory uh, versus the theology of of the cross focused on the righteousness that God would give us through faith in the cross. Do you ever get to the point in the Christian life where you don't need the cross of Jesus Christ anymore? We are brought again and again to the cross. 
or brought again and again. We who are sinners and who are always both just and a sinner, we must come again and again to the cross. Now, Luther's, I find this very interesting, what he called the, the theologians of glory or the theology of glory. I found this interesting. I think what he was dealing with here, and it's not terminology I would have used, and it took me a while to understand what he was talking about. But what he means is those that say peace, peace when there is no peace. They're talking about a glorious kind of optimistic way of looking at things, but they're not really dealing and wrestling deeply with sin and with the problems that we have. So he called them the theologians of glory. Um, And he says this. um, All right. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering in the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. So the theology of glory was human ability, that man is not entirely fallen, especially reason. And reasoning to God, we can work our way to God by reason, by philosophy, by understanding God through the thought processes. What Luther is saying is, no, there's no part of you that's not tainted with sin. Your reason is corrupted just like your heart is. It's all corrupted by sin. You can't reason your way to God. Now, if the first part is true, human ability, man is not entirely fallen, then we can save ourselves, can't we? If we just think rightly and start living rightly, then God will accept us. But he said that's not possible. And so he brought us instead to the theology of the cross, that God revealed himself at the cross. I was talking to a church member and, and uh, just we were just sharing openly about some things and encouraging one another. And, and he said to me, probably the number one thing, that I've learned from you, saying to me uh, in my preaching and teaching, he said, is that is that the cross reveals God in all of his glory. You see, the cross reveals the attributes of God. You can see it all in the cross. You can see his love in the cross. You can see his justice at the cross. You can see his wrath at the cross. You can see his compassion at the cross and his mercy. You can see his power at the cross. You can see his knowledge at the cross. All of it with so many prophecies fulfilled there at the cross. The cross reveals God. And in Jesus' mind, reveals means glorifies. So that's the true glory. You want the true glory, you go to the cross. So in effect, the theologians of glory skip the cross and go right to the glory. You see, you can't do it. It's at the cross you find the glory of God. You remember what Jesus said when he said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify uh, you. And he also said uh, the time he said in another place, he said, um, or, or John said, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been what? Glorified. What is he talking about? Crucified. The crucifixion. Now, that's the true glory. You want to understand the glory of God. You understand the cross, the theology of cross. So I was sharing with this I, this brother, and, I, and I, I forgot to say it, but I'd say it now if I get a chance. I said, well, I didn't get it myself. I got it from Luther. Luther showed me that you want to see the glory of God, you look at the cross. Let me speak to you just as a pastor and as a friend, as a Christian brother. If you're struggling with sin, go to the cross. If you're struggling with depression and discouragement, go to the cross. It doesn't matter uh, what's caused it. It may be that you're discouraged about circumstances in your life. Maybe you're discouraged about your employment situation. Maybe you're discouraged about relationships, discouraged about a sin that seems to have ascendancy over you, discouraged about chronic illness, either in yourself or a loved one. I just think the cross is the place to go. Remember that that's where Jesus solves the problems of the world, the theology of the cross. You know, we can go beyond that and say, Jesus said, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you're not worthy of me. 
So that's a different kind of theology of the cross and it has to do with our willingness to suffer and die ourselves, to be like Jesus, to die to ourselves that God's kingdom might be advanced. And that's also part of the theology of the cross. Okay? Um, Christ and the cross, uh, shameful, not glorious. God can only be found in suffering and in the cross. Okay? So that's the theology of the cross. Now let's talk about these solas. Let's go down to page, the bottom of page 6. Solas, uh, I think there's four of them here. Sola Scriptura, as we mentioned last time, basically what this meant was that we were going to put our focus on the Word of God. The Word of God alone has authority in matters of faith and practice. What would be some other contenders for that? Other than Scripture, what would it be? Tradition, human traditions. The Catholic Church had that in the traditions of the councils. The councils would gather together and try to solve a theological issue. They'd come up with pronouncements and those pronouncements would be written down in what was known as canon law. The problem was those things frequently overturned and contradicted each other. You know, you talk about, they say, well, the word of God, you know, Luther said the popes and councils have often contradicted themselves. Well, you could say, yeah, but doesn't the word contradict itself? And unbelievers can, if you don't believe in the authority of the word, you can perhaps find some contradictions in the Bible. Yeah, but no, no, the popes and councils flatly contradicted each other. Like one pope or council would say one thing and then they'd overturn it a hundred years later and go a different direction. It wasn't, it wasn't like, like the seeming contradictions of the scripture. And so they, he removed that. He said, we can't lean on that. We've got to go to the scripture alone. What would be another uh, form of authority that you could use? Pragmatics. Okay. Yeah, and I would, I would elevate that to just... Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about pragmatics. That would be just human reason, right? Uh, what seems right to you? The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is what? It's death. Right. So you could say my final word, the final word for me is what seems right to me, what I think is true. Uh, he said, no, no, no. Sola Scriptura. We're going to finish with the word of God. That's what he did. So he was looking by Scripture, uh, looking at Scripture alone versus Scripture and tradition. Page 7. For Luther, Scripture alone did not mean the history of inter- interpretation was without value. By that I mean Luther did quote the church fathers. He did quote dead theologians. He did quote other people. All right? But he was quoting them as they were seeking to unfold the Word of God. You see? He wasn't citing them as final authority, but only in their ability to present the Word of God. And I feel the same way. People have the ability to influence our church in their ability to marshal the Word of God to the issue at hand. It's always been that if we're dealing with some controversial issue, you have the right to influence as long as you stand up with Scripture. All right? It's the Scripture we're seeking. That's what we, we want to try to understand. So Luther wasn't dispensing church history with, dispensing with church history, whatever. But he says, even as he's reading through what he knew about Augustine and Bernard of Clairvaux or some of these other guys, trying to figure out what they wrote, he's always trying to get at Scripture. That's what he wants. He wants to know what, did, what does the Bible say. So, Scripture alone. Scripture was a guide to life and godliness. Luther lived his theology. He read the Scriptures through twice a year. Landis, thank you so much for your encouragement. So, you know, just ratchet it up a bit and go twice a year. I wonder how he did it. Have you ever tried to do that? Read through the Bible in a year. Landis was sharing this. 29, coming on 30 years that he's read through the Bible. That's wonderful. That takes a lot of time. It's a lot of chapters. And the problem for me isn't one day. The problem is when you miss a day. That's That's where the problem comes in. And the rent starts coming due. It's when you get behind in your payments that I have problems and I start to get discouraged. And I kind of, I kind of revamp my goals for the year. Say, so I'm looking at the New Testament this year. Just think it'd be really good to, 
But uh, Luther read through twice a year. George Mueller read through a hundred times in his life. hundred times. It's amazing how these folks did this, but Luther lived it out. Secondly, sola fide. That means by faith alone. By faith alone. Faith alone apart from works. Now, some people looked on this as a, as a, heret, a heretical teaching. Sola fideism, they called it, you know, by faith alone. And they said, what about the book of James? Faith alone by itself is dead. Well, Luther knew James. He called it an epistle of straw, but he knew that James was there. He said, okay, if you're going to force me to answer the epistle of straw, what I will say is that faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. It always produces good works, always. And so, um, by faith alone we are made righteous, all right? Without works, not that the righteous person does nothing, but that his works do not make him righteous. Rather, his righteousness creates works, okay? The third sola is sola gratia, which is by grace alone. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the law cannot save. You cannot work your way to God by obedience to the law. By works of the law shall no flesh be justified, it says in the book of Romans. The law is only given to uncover sin and to bring you to grace. It is grace that saves and grace alone. And it's not, there's not a mixture here of grace and human works. It's not do what lies within you and then God will cover the rest with grace. It's that what within you is sinful. All of it's of grace. You need God's grace from beginning to end. And so by grace alone, we are saved. We need Christ and we need, um, we need uh, his grace. I like this that Luther wrote. Uh, he said, the law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe this, uh, believe in this and everything is done already. So it's just the power of grace. You know, to me, I, grace is my only hope. And what is grace? Well, I don't think, I don't think of grace as, as just something passive in which God covers my sin. I look on it as like a tornado in my life, you know? Uh, grace hunts me down and makes me do right. You know what I'm saying? Grace won't leave me being wicked. Grace is aggressive. It's, it, it, it's initiatory. It's alive. It comes after me. It gives me what I need and it's going to get me to heaven. You see what I'm saying? And I talked about this on, uh, Sunday evening when I was talking about Hebrews, that there are different kinds of grace you have in your life and you need different kinds of grace at different times in your life. Sometimes you need continuing grace when you're doing well. Lord, give me the grace to keep going. Sometimes you need restorative grace. Renew me, O Lord. Restore me. Sometimes you need convicting grace. When you're blind to certain sin patterns in your life, you need the Holy Spirit to convict you. Sometimes you need conquering grace. When you feel weak in the face of a, of a temptation, you say, Lord God, please give me the grace to overcome. Uh, all of these things are grace, aren't they? And they all come to us in Christ by grace alone. And then finally, in Christ alone. Christ is the only mediator between God and man, not the church, not the sacraments, and not human ability. Okay, these are the solas of the Reformation. Also, one of Luther's insights was the value of the individual Christian, what we call the lay Christian. By lay, we mean not ordained, not a priest, you know, not a pastor, etc., not an ordained or so-called professional Christian. He talked about the priesthood of the believer. All priests, all, all believers have a priestly ministry before God. He said this, every shoemaker can be a priest of God. Now, for us, that's really not that radical. But realize back then, this was incredibly radical. 
priests had special privileges. For example, a Roman Catholic priest was the only one in their system who had the ability to turn the, the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ. They had a special, a special anointing from God to give them special powers. So for him to say a common shoemaker can be a priest just didn't make any sense. But where is he getting this from? He's getting this from the word of God. It says in 1 Peter 2 that all of us have a priestly ministry. It says in Revelation that he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. So he talks about the priestly ministry of every believer. He doesn't abolish clergy. But what he does is he rejects a class distinction where clergy have special access to God that the laity does not. Um, basically, you're no more valuable to God because you're a pastor. You're no less valuable if you're not. We do have different roles to play. Not many of us should presume to be teachers. Not everybody's going to have that responsibility. But nobody's more or less significant in the plans of God. Each one is faithful or not faithful to what God's called them to do. Now, that's the issue. It's not more or less important in God's sight. And that's a very important distinction, isn't it? Some people say that the Reformation and Luther's teaching was kind of the beginning of the common man, you know, the beginning of the everyday person and the significance of that, leading eventually, some say, to our American Revolution and other things. All that's beyond me, I don't know. Uh, history is just too complicated. But I do say this, he elevated the common person. The common uh, boy at the plow would know more of Scripture than the Pope did, he said. So uh, there was in Luther the doctrine of vocation, and vocation is from the Latin word to call. And what it means is that basically everyone has a calling from God. And you need to find your calling. God is calling you to do something to serve Him. That makes your life valuable, doesn't it? Makes your time here on earth valuable. Do you realize that it says in Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship created to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them? Do you realize there's not a person on earth who can walk in your good works? You're the only one who can do them. You're the only one. Are those good works which God has ordained for you to walk in, are they valuable and important in God's eternal plan? You better believe they are. That means you are significant. Your good works are significant. Only you can pray the prayers you're going to pray tonight before you go to bed. Only you can do the good works that God has set up for you to do tomorrow. Nobody else can do your good works for you. And nobody else will stand with you when you give Christ an account of what you've done with your life. You'll be alone. You understand what I'm saying? So that means every person in this room, myself included, we're all significant and our lives are significant and we are all accountable and responsible, aren't we? We have to do the good works God has ordained for us to do. All right, finally, in I was hoping to leave less time than this, but anyway, um, on the bondage of the will. Um, I'll tell you what, there are a few issues over which Christians have stumbled and wrestled and struggled than the issue of free will and God's sovereignty. Um, it's a very, very tough uh, issue to work through. And I believe um, that I'll be going after Genesis 25 over to Romans 9 and start preaching in Romans again. So I preached already 1 through 4 and then 5 through 8. And it just so happens the next chapter is chapter 9. I don't want you thinking, oh, here he is preaching Romans 9. We always knew he's going to do this. Well, just look at the order of what I've already preached. It's on the Internet. It's the next chapter, okay? So, but uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, these things bring us into the very meat of some of the hardest doctrines there are to understand. So pray for me, all joking aside, that I will be faithful to teach it accurately and well but uh, the bottom line is thomas more a uh, good friend of erasmus a humanist uh, i don't know if you ever saw the movie a man for all seasons he was the focus of that the play itself was wonderful and total fiction uh, but at any rate uh, that's just kind of the way it was but thomas more said to his good uh, good friend erasmus you know you need to debate luther on the freedom of the will and um, luther um, 
Erasmus wrote a diatribe on the freedom of the will. The debate with Erasmus, this was very difficult for Luther because he had counted on Erasmus for at least benevolent neutrality. Early on, their relationship had been cordial at least. However, the two were in fundamental disagreement over the nature of salvation and the nature of reform that the church needed. For Erasmus, true religion was a matter of basic inclination of the heart toward love for neighbor based on the wisdom found in God's word. Did you hear that? Basically, you just need to start loving your neighbor based on what's taught in the word. And if you just would know more of the word of God and incline your heart toward your neighbor, you'll be fine. Well, I, I think that sounds lightweight, <laughs> very lightweight. I don't think it deals with the real, real issues. Um, but at any rate, uh, Luther saw correct doctrine as the fundamental issue. And so Thomas More suggested to Erasmus the proper topic was freedom of the will. And so in 1524, Erasmus wrote a diatribe on the freedom of the will. Now, what did, Luther, what did Erasmus say? Well, first of all, he preferred the position of a skeptic in these kinds of matters unless compelled to a certain view by the church, by the scriptures of the fathers. In other words, I'd really rather not have to fly my flag on this one. I like to just kind of stay below the radar. They didn't have radar back then. But anyway, I'd like to, I'd like to just, you know, I want to refrain from making any statements um, because this is such a difficult issue to understand. Um, he argues that the matter cannot be finally resolved. We're not smart enough. We don't know enough. And so therefore, we can't finally resolve it. The scriptures are unclear. And so therefore, ha- uh, someone has to uh, resort, one has to resort to reason and experience to answer this. Humans obviously are able to make decisions because they're commanded to. And so because of that, they had to be able to do it. So he spends most of his time saying, you know, I don't really know why we're talking about this, but he's the one who chose the topic. Very interesting. But uh, at any rate, he says we really can't make a final pronouncement or resolution on this. Now, Erasmus had a very refined Latin style. He was probably the greatest classicist of his time, highly educated, etc. Luther took a long time replying to him. He had a hard time replying. But when he did, my goodness, you got to read it sometimes. Fascinating. But he said, I want you to know I didn't reply. I didn't fail to reply because you had gotten the final word in the matter. Um, But I failed to reply because I've always kind of looked on you as a mentor, and you are definitely my superior in matters of style and in writing. Uh, I can't basically hold a candle to you. But the problem is that all of that beautiful style is used in such a horrible presentation of doctrine that it's somewhat like carrying refuse in a a beautiful vase. All right? That was, that was Luther, all right? So you've got this beautiful vase, your flowery style and all that, but there's nothing in it worth reading. Besides which, another reason I didn't answer you, you know, until finally my friends say you've got to respond to him is that uh, Melanchthon destroyed you in his writing and he answered all of these, all of your arguments have been dealt with for centuries. It's all old stuff. So that's how he began. Actually, the two of them were never really close friends, but after that, it was really tough to get the two of them together for an evening of dinner and entertainment. So what did Luther say? Well, Luther's book is a little tedious to read because in the style of the day, he sought to refute Erasmus point by point. So almost there's a recapitulation of everything Erasmus says, and then he refutes it, every doctrine, every scripture. Uh, He wrote it in December of 1525 on the bondage of the will. He kept putting off his response. As I said, he found it distasteful to answer such an unlearned book from a learned man. Well, let me tell you, that is my summary of it. I wrote that summary a few years ago. you ought to read what he actually says. I gave you a, a sense of it. He was really disgusted with what Erasmus wrote. He began by thanking Erasmus for finding the kernel of the nut in the conflict between Luther and the Catholics. That is significant. What am I, I'll say it to you again. I said it at the beginning of the time tonight. The nub, the core of the Reformation is on this debate on the freedom of the will. 
If you can save yourself, then the sacramental system will do just fine to do it, right? You don't need a reformation. But if you can't, then we must have a savior. We must have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. So he responded to each of Erasmus's 200 scriptural references to prove that the matter actually could be resolved. Humans were allowed freedom to things below us, but not things above us. Unaided, the human will cannot move toward God. Luther vigorously pounced on Erasmus's unwillingness to make theological pronouncements. By the way, that was typical of Erasmus. What do I mean by that? Luther said, Erasmus is as slippery as an eel. Only Christ can catch him. Erasmus is trying to survive. He doesn't want to get burned at the stake. So he said, well, wouldn't it be better for us to just not talk about these things and all that? Luther's willing to die. You know, and if you try to save your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life, you're willing, you know, if you're willing to lose your life, you can save it. Luther was willing to die. And he said, no, we've got to be as bold as the scriptures are. The scripture says more about this topic than you do, Erasmus. And we have to be willing to go to those scriptures and understand them. That's what he was getting at. Um, Christian has to make a stand on the truth. And then scriptures are clear on matters pertaining to salvation. So clear pronouncements are mandatory for Christians. Now, I want to give you a couple of readings uh, of what Luther wrote, and then you can read the rest. There's extended sections, quotes here. Um, I gave you a, a webpage site where you can get more of it if you'd like. But uh, I want to read some of Luther's writing style so you get a sense of how he approached this. All right. It is not irreligious, wasteful, or superficial, but essentially healthy and necessary for a Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. All right, that's what he said. All right, in the second section, I've, I've bolded the sections I want to read to you now. Since God's foreknowledge is not uncertain, then free will is non-existent. It is fundamentally necessary and healthy for Christians to acknowledge that God foreknows nothing uncertainly but that he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his own immutable, eternal, and infallible will. This bombshell or thunderbolt, literally is what Luther says, knocks free will flat and utterly shatters it so that uh, those who want to assert it must either deny my thunderbolt or pretend not to notice it or find some other way of dodging it. Now, this is the key. A will which has no power without grace is actually not free. Think about what Luther called his whole work, the bondage of the will, right? How, how does this sound, okay? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My heart was free. My chains fell off. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Does that sound familiar? And can it be? That's what Luther said. We're in bondage. We're in bondage. The free will, free will is in bondage. And without a savior, we're not going to get out. You, you describe the power of free will as small and wholly ineffective apart from the grace of God. Agreed? Now then, I ask you, if God's grace is wanting or lacking, if it is taken away from that small power, then what can it do? It is ineffective, you say, and can do nothing good. So it will not do what God or his grace wills. Why? Because we have now taken God's grace away from it. And what the grace of God does not do is not good. Hence, it follows that free will without grace, God's grace is not free at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil, since it cannot turn itself to good. This being so, I give you full permission to enlarge the power of free will as much as you like. Make it angelic. Make it divine if you can. But when you add this doleful postscript, script that it is ineffective apart from God's grace, straight away you rob it of all its power. In other words, if you've got to have God's grace to do 
his will, then it's a slave. But if God gives his grace, then it liberates the will and uh, makes it a servant of God. And then D, the comfort of knowing that salvation does not depend on free will. I frankly confess that for myself, even if it could be, I should not want free will to be given to me, nor anything to be uh, justified in my own hands to enable me to endeavor after salvation. Not merely because in the face of so many dangers and adversities and assaults of the devil, I could not stand my ground and hold fast my free will. For one devil is stronger than all men, and on these terms no man could be saved. But because even were there no dangers, adversities, or devils, I should still be forced to labor with no guarantee of success and to beat my fists at the air. If I lived and worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleases God or whether he required something more. The experience of all who seek righteousness by works proves that. And I learned it well enough myself over a period of many years to my own great hurt. But now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of his and promised to save me, not according to my working or running, but according to his own grace and mercy, I have the comfortable certainty that he is faithful and will not lie to me and that he is also great and powerful and that no devils or opposition can break him or pluck me from him. No one, he says, shall pluck them out of my hand because my father which gave them is greater than them all. Thus it is that if not all, yet some indeed many are saved. Whereas by the power of free will, none at all could be saved, but every one of us would perish. Furthermore, I have the comfortable certainty that I please God, not by reason of the merit of my works, but by reason of his merciful favor, favor promised to me. So that if I work too little or badly, he does not impute it to me, but with fatherly compassion pardons me and makes me better. This is the glorying of all the saints in their God. Now, I'll tell you what, how do you have assurance of salvation if it all depends on you, of your own free will, holding on to God? How do you know you're going to do it tomorrow? How do you know you're going to do it 10 years from now? How do you know you'll be still doing it as you lay on your deathbed? I tell you, you don't know. And if you don't know, then the, the ultimate issue of your soul is not settled, no matter what state you're in right now. You understand what I'm saying? You don't know where you're going to spend eternity, in heaven or hell. And is that important to you? Well, I think if it weren't, you wouldn't be here tonight, right? If it, mat- if it didn't matter at all to you, whether you were in heaven or hell, then you wouldn't be here tonight. And what Luther says, is if it depends on your free will, you will not make it. You will lose because the devil's too strong for you and so is your flesh. All right, you can read the rest on your own. We're out of time. Let's close in prayer. Landis, can I get you to do that for us tonight? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.